Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. We are no longer in charge. The major actor is the hyper-object, and it will exceed anything we think we can project, manage, or map, or anything like that. The threat environment is um, entangled, which means that planetary, human, and state security are now inherently interconnected. It's just simply incompatible to have World War III or massive escalation of warfare and address the hyper threat. Because the more warfare you do, the more you strengthen the hyper threat. Voice and ideas are so controlled that we're actually stifling our biggest asset, which is that creative problem-solving ability that people have. What is going on at the moment is a is a, a fight for what's left and for dominance, but that fight will derail the chance to save our e- ecology. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Bolton, who is an eco-military theorist with Destination Safe Earth and a research affiliate with the Climate Change and Insecurity Project, which is a collaboration between the University of Oxford, the Centre for Historical Analysis and Conflict Research, and the British Army. Her doctoral research developed the idea that climate and environmental change constitute a new form of threat, a hyper-threat. She then applied modified military threat analysis and strategic planning tools to investigate options for a hyper-response. This led to Plan E, the world's first climate and eco-centred security strategy, published by the US Marine Corps University Press in 2022. Previously, Elizabeth served as an officer in the Australian Army, where she deployed to East Timor and Iraq. Later, as a civilian, she spent time in Ghana, Nigeria and Sudan in humanitarian work. In 2007, she completed a Master's of Climate Policy at the University of Melbourne before moving to the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, working in its National Climate Centre in Climate Risk Communication. She joined me today to discuss her thinking behind the concepts of hyper-threat, hyper-response and Plan E. Elizabeth, uh, or, or I think you prefer Liz, thank you for joining me on The Voices of War. Thanks very much for having me. So before we get to Plan E and, uh, and all the thinking that's gone into it, uh, I think it's useful to get to know you a little more. So uh, as mentioned in your bio, you were in the Army. Why did you join in the first place and what was your career like? Um, like it's funny, I, I joined straight out of school to ADFA and I actually was in the Navy initially. And oh. yeah, while I was... No, um, we have to stop the interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and while I was there... Um, I transferred to the army, and yet yeah, that was the typical reaction from people. Yeah. Was people? I remember one girl ran up across the quadrangle, sort of thing, screaming at me, um, "What are you doing? You know, do you yeah. like your back? Do you like your knees?" And yeah, yeah. that's understandable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, people thought I was crazy, but it, it did. I, I mean, I, I had no idea about the army actually. And in, in year twelve, there was the Hoddle Street massacre, and mm. I remember um, that. That the shooter was an ex. He'd been kicked out of Duntroon, and 
And I, you know, I actually said at school at one stage, joining the army is the last thing I would ever do. Um, So it is quite funny. Um, But basically, look, I was someone who loved uh, rock climbing and um, being outdoors and all of that. And then once Mm -hmm. I got to ADFA, I saw the team culture and I'd come back from a a tour with the Navy where we'd sort of been nice hotels and shown a lot Mm. of machinery and stuff. And then I saw Mm -hmm. the army Mm -hmm. people come back um, covered (laughs) in mud and very, um, you know, the camaraderie and stuff. And I actually mm, thought, mm. actually, that's what I prefer. Um, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But the, yeah, and the opportunities, I wasn't really technically minded and the army had more options for someone like me who wasn't technically minded. So, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Trans- I went into transport and logistics. Um, mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, hey, I, I went through ADFA as well and uh, I distinctly remember uh, you know, seeing our uh, our Navy and Air Force friends uh, coming from their exercises, uh, uh, and of course us uh, in the green, so uh, uh, distinctly uh, embeds and us and them very early on <laughs> in the career. And uh, what do they say? Uh, Army navigates by the stars, uh, Navy sails by the stars, and the Air Force uh, uh, sleeps in five stars. I think it's something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, or at least that was the that was the joke. Um, okay. And how did you then end up doing a PhD on climate crisis? How did because that's a pretty significant shift from uh, joining the army to then uh, being a PhD researcher uh, on climate crisis. Yeah. Um, well, b- believe it or not, the the day after I got back from Iraq, I was um, walking down a Fitzroy Street in St Kilda. There used to be a mm. lovely bookstore there, and I came across a book just browsing through, which alerted me to to climate and all all range of environmental problems. And I, I was just absolutely. Uh, spellbound because I, I couldn't mm. at that stage had come out about the weapons of mass destruction you know not existing etc mm, and mm, I, mm. I I couldn't understand why I'd seen the enormous mobilization for the Middle East or for Iraq weapons of mass destruction but here was this other thing that was going to potentially you know kill stacks of people and it seemed mm. nothing was being done and that was in 2004 mm. um, so that that book actually prompted me to um, get out and start a new career and, and that, you know, that's when I started, you know, I did the Masters of Climate at Melbourne Uni and mm. started working in that field and then ended up at the Bureau. But while I was at the Bureau of Meteorology, um, which was an incredible privilege, actually, because I was working with um, really the, some of the top climate scientists and their, their intellects were in their absolute stratosphere. And it was, it was mm. really quite incredible. But I, I was watching um, the very siloed way of analysing all the different environmental things. And I could see immediately that there was no intelligence function of joining the dots at all. And mm. so when, when I went into that environment, I could br- you know, bring my military background and, and I saw it as a threat, as a sort of early warning centre. But there was, mm-hmm. there was sort of a missing layers of, of interpreting those signals and, and also problems with communicating those signals out to people. Um, but it, mm. it was a very interesting time because, they, you know, even at that stage, which was quite a long time ago, there were various climate scientists um, getting all sorts of personal attacks, um, being censored, some being sacked for speaking out and also suffering great depression, That like they're watching the death knells of the, the, the planet the whole time and, and not being listened to. So mm. so anyway, but what I what I – from being in that environment, I, I think I was inspired by their intellects and – um, there was a real sense of being on this sort of front line of a of an important issue, and um, mm, mm, and mm, I saw mm. these interlinkages between um, military methods and so forth and threat, and that's that's why I then mm. um, decided to do the PhD. Is that then when the idea of the hyper threat 
was born based on what you saw uh, at the bureau and then uh, uh, applying your, I guess, military hat to provide a kind of first level analysis of what, what you're actually seeing uh, in the real world? I, I think, um, I, as, as you mentioned, I had some time in Africa and I was in Sudan where there was that incredible starvation and I was working around a lot of those um, those camps where you had just severely malnourished people and, and mm. moderately, but the severely, it's just, you know, they're like skeletons with um, glad yeah. wrap on them. It's just it's pretty um, mm. crazy, just awful to see. But I, I think as soon as I read that book, in my mind, I saw this as a threat, um, I, you know, because I'd experienced that starvation and, and that sort of thing. So I I saw it as mm. a threat immediately in my head at, at that stage. But the development, the, the PhD, the, the start point concept was, um, for me, was why aren't we responding to this how we would, to some other big, you know, crisis like even the global financial crisis or all sorts of things that we know, we obviously know how to do it, mm. but why mm. aren't we doing it? So um, that that seemed to me the bigger question because a lot of people could sort of nut out, well, Gary, you should just do a Marshall Plan, but we're not doing a Marshall Plan, so why aren't we? And um, so I, I then went had quite a bit of time researching climate communication and mm. and and at that very stage there was also a lot of a lot of people researching this because of the failures of Copenhagen and stuff why weren't people responding to these climate facts so there was a massive body of research on it and at the same time uh, neuroscience was making all these breakthroughs about how um, cognition happens and so forth so uh, from that I determined that the center of gravity the main thing holding people back was their deep frames which that refers to these really deeply entrenched neuron pathways that are pretty much formed from birth, you know, from mm-hmm. constant. And, and you, what we now understand with the brain is that we form these first through sensory signals. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we have five senses. They sort of act as detectors of signals from the environment and then they sort of cross-reference each other. And the more they cross-reference, the more it solidifies a neuron pathway mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. evidence. And that's how cognition – so this is the precognitive thing that builds the mm-hmm. the software. So there was a lot of research on deep framing and 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 basically what it occurred to me is that we don't actually have um, – and this is not just my ideas but a whole stack of brain scientists – we don't have a neuron pathway to conceptualise this problem. So we don't even have mm-hmm. this, like, it, we're thinking in Excel, but the problem's in Word or something. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So mm-hmm. so yeah. you actually, yeah. we actually had to build a new way of thinking and conceptualising. And um, okay. and so basically I, I saw that as the centre of gravity and I, I diverted most almost my entire focus, you know, and this is, I started this actually and I stopped and started a bit, but in 2012, so my center of gravity analysis <laughs> hasn't been like an hour or two on a whiteboard. It's been mm. um, sort of years of uh, mm. deep inquiry into it. And and I guess the if, if so, is it a you're obviously focusing a lot on the on the human psychology yeah. uh, uh, and how that translates into and I guess if you're talking about framing uh, into the narratives that we accept as, uh, as true, uh, and then of course because of your background in in crisis communication, I'd imagine how we then communicate that is that. Broadly, yeah, that's right. right. And and basically what – but it, it's actually even even bigger than that. It's a, it's a whole world, world view. And so it's mm. this idea that we, we're called moderns, which is we, we can't even – we're a unique um, form of human when you look across the spectrum of mm-hmm. humans that we don't really get it that we're dependent on the natural world. 
Mm, so yeah, moderns yeah, um, yeah. are very disconnected. Well, we're from so the disconnected from the yeah. from the natural world, right? In our, in our especially yeah. in our urban environments. Yeah, like we're we're industrial creatures. We think in a particular way, and that way mm. of thinking is now redundant for our survival. So basically, I was on the hunt then for a new way of thinking, and I was so I was hunting, hunting. Like I really had a military mindset with it. Like mm, I must mm. solve this problem, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, and so I was looking for thinkers who were at the forefront of thinking in a new way. And mm. that's when I came across um, Timothy Morton's book, mm. Hyper Objects. And mm. there's mm. another other, a few others that have influenced me, but he was obviously critical. And what, what really struck me was I was an instantly intrigued by his book, but what also uh, I got incredibly irritated when I was reading it. Like every page I was sort of like cursing and, you know, and I had to have Wikipedia open at the yeah. whole time to <laughs> yeah. interpret yeah. it. And but yeah. what I realised is that they say that when you when you get a concept or an idea that challenges your neuron pathway, you don't actually have any um, structures for it. That mm. humans have a response called flooding out, or they they have a severe reaction. And mm. I realised that I was I was flooding out because he was telling me something new, and that's what. And the fact that I had such a reaction made me realise he was. Mm. You know that there was something in this, and yeah. um, and the more I read it, the more I thought this is absolutely it totally responds to the deep framing research. And, That's really um, interesting. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. yeah, I probably should explain his concept a little bit more, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. Just, just before, And I yeah. definitely want to get into that, yeah. but, I do, but I just want to yeah. circle back on the, on the deep frames because I think that's a really important point that, that might not be as obvious. But, I mean, you know, these are concepts that we take to be, you know, it's almost like axioms, you know, they're self-evident truths that we don't question anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, what you described now when you were reading – uh, I guess Morton's book is 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 ha- what I've experienced reading work on free will uh, or or non-duality in the in the, in in the meditation space, uh, which are kind of things that they strike you as so bizarre uh, and foreign that your brain just can't compute it. That you almost and like you said, you know, you kind of had to walk away and come back. But there's something that keeps pulling you back uh, mm-hmm. that intrigues you uh, uh, to try and unpack it, and it, and and it, and I guess in a way makes you look at everything you know. All the previous frames that you've uh, uh, that you've kind of built multitudes of layers, like layers of onion, on uh, it makes mm. you unpick all of those uh, to then completely change potentially how you look at the world around you or how you see yourself as part of that world. Uh, and that's what I've just heard you describe mm. when you were reading Morton's book. So it really resonates with me because I think it's, and that only takes, in, in my experience at least, it, it, that only happens when you delve a lot of time into one particular question uh, rather than on Twitter or on social media or reading, uh, you know, or, uh, a newspaper uh, or, or something that's kind of very uh, kind of today and now uh, as opposed to something that uh, takes quite some time to develop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, so what, I mean, we've had this conception in the Western world probably that we're, you know, we're at the peak of intellect and understanding things and all that sort of thing. But mm. And even that human evolution is finished, but basically mm. there's an understanding now that it's not finished and um, mm. and that actually, like one of the ways that we have thought is that the humans are the dominant species and that our way of um, our, our f- f- way of philosophy, uh, philosophy and understanding and meaning making is the only way. And so there's actually this whole field of study called new materialism that uh, looks at objects and nature and says well that actually they're they're alive at a molecular level and all sorts of things are going on there and and when we go into these atoms and and things and understand how 
how that behave, how that uh, particularly at the quantum level, how behavior happens. They say, well, mm. who said that humans um, are the masters of knowledge? Mm. That in mm. fact, um, what if we go back to the atom and the, back to these quantum principles and understand how nature actually works, and then derive ph- philosophical principles from that? Mm. And mm. so, mm. basically, there's there's a lot of work going on in this area, which is really quite fascinating. But it decenters the human as the locus of meaning. And particularly with the um, Morton's concept with a hyper object is what, what he argues is that just to give a very simple, yeah, um, please, yeah. he, instead of uh, climate change being described, or he prefers the term global warming, as um, endless series of statistics, you know, ice melt, soil degradation, yeah. yada, yada. And graphs and so on, yeah. Yeah, and graphs. He materialises it. It turns it into one thing. And he says this, it's a new object just means thing in philosophical language. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But it's a new thing that humans have never encountered before. So his entire book is it's got a ch- it's got five characteristics, and each chapter describes an aspect of its characteristics. But it moves in a way that a thing that we've never it, it, we have to learn what it is basically before we can, and we don't even have any consciousness of very limited consciousness to, of it. But mm, it, essentially, mm. it moves sort of like fog; it's diffused through everything. Um, and sorry, this is about so climate change. He, when he's describing climate is, change yeah, as having this is these the five hyper-object. key. Yeah, yeah, as, yeah, that he explains his hyper object. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so one of the, it moves like fog. It's um, distributed over vast uh, timeframes um, beyond the human's conception of timeframes, um, like a human life type, type mm. of error. Mm-hmm. Um, planetary scale timeframes. Um, it operates through other objects. So, 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 for example, we have a drought. We see the cracked soil, but we don't see we don't see you can really point at climate mm. global warming mm-hmm. and say there mm-hmm. it is but you see yeah. its impacts um, like yeah. the wind rustles the the, the um, we know the wind's there because the yeah. the leaves move yeah that's right um, you see the result but not necessarily the cause or, 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 where, yeah. or where, where it's orig- originated from yeah. yeah yeah so he has basically a whole series of these things but what he's emphasizing is that um, this is something that it, it's beyond our cognitive abilities and it defies it, the way we um, understand knowledge and things like that. And it, like, we can't even model it. Um, and even and even that we're, you know, those Russian dolls that they're packed mm-hmm. inside yeah, them? Yeah, 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 yeah. When, yeah. My daughter's playing get... with some uh, at the oh, moment. She... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's saying like we're like the little doll in the middle. We can't even get out of the problem to properly see the problem. Mm, mm, and so mm. it's really about humbling the human and basically saying that this century – we are no longer in charge. The major actor is the hyper object and it will exceed anything we think we can project, manage or map or anything like that. We've got to be humbled that this is a gigantic thing that we don't fully understand. Mm. We've got, you know, obviously a lot of science, but it will still defy our understandings. So this yeah. this is actually quite an important thing because from a risk planning you know, just to practical put this into practice, it's actually used. This concept is used in risk um, and disaster planning because it sort of becomes a thing to say that remember it will defy our understanding of what mm. it, how it will behave. It will, the fire will be stronger. You know, the, it will yeah. exceed. Or and, and even even in monitoring certain things, people said, well, it, it blew. We've got they've got certain measurement. Um, you know, like a scale of one to ten of how much humidity or something happens yeah, when yeah, yeah. you know a cyclone happens or something but it's blowing those charts right so right, it's right, just right. It, it's um basically what that says to me is that if if as a threat planner if you know that we're not going to be able to fully understand it then you have to put in stacks more mitigation and um buffers and protections because mm, mm, you mm. know it changes your mindset of how you approach yeah. the threat 
Yeah, you, well, I guess you have, you have to account for a lot more. Well, as we'd like to say, fudge factor, right? I mean, it's a, yeah. you know, you, you might be thinking uh, even in a, on a household budget, you know, when you say, okay, well, this is what I expect to spend, but uh, let's put a fudge factor in of uh, 10, 20%. And I think uh, to now put that into a hyper object, which, as you say, is so grand and spans such vast temporal horizons that we just can't imagine it at an individual level, probably at a societal level, uh, I think the fudge factor should be. Well, probably a lot more significant, and and that capacity for us for not to see it. So one of the th- main things he says that we can't really, um, it's defying our conception is that that is exasperated by, you know, the media control and all sorts of the battle for the narrative and yeah incentives yeah yeah. So I mean, even just just yesterday, I heard that there's like extreme fires going all through Chile, but I had to had to sort of Google certain things you know do a search on climate emergency or hashtag mm. and for the, they're not coming up in our and media naturally and you're mm. only stumbling across these pretty um, amazing things sometimes by having to um, you know random you know I'm not researching it constantly every day yeah, but yeah, yeah. but what's um, you know if you think from a threat perspective you would have proper analytics and you'd have a screen mm, with all mm, those things mm, happening mm, live mm, with mm. you know great graphics and all the rest of it but we mm, mm. we don't have that. Yeah, a, a control center of sorts or, or mm. operation center, uh, uh, as we've come to know them in the military, uh, to track mm. all the significant activities <laughs> in a particular area. Uh, which is uh, it's it's incredible that we don't. But uh, but again, I think the reason we don't is because it's such a grand problem uh, that you know what matters for us in Australia today uh, and what's happening in Chile today. You know, it's <laughs> the twenty-four hour news cycle doesn't necessarily care about Chile because, uh, hey, we've got another election, we've got a, you know, we've got a meeting here or, or a conference there or a multitude of other issues uh, to 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 consider, uh, whether it's foreign policy related or domestic policy related, uh, and uh, yeah, there's only so much time in a day, and of course, the things that are going to capture eyeballs are the ones that uh, take precedent. So, so that's, I guess, the hyper object uh, and the idea of the hyper threat. In your writing, you talk also a lot about the concept of entangled security. So how does that fit in then into this kind of overarching hyper threat uh, slash hyper object uh, concept? Um, if, could I just backtrack just one little quick thing yeah, on the please. hyper threat yeah. to distinguish please. it from, it's not identical to Morton's concept because he mm-hmm. has a sort of idea that the human is powerless and we're just going to be like a leaf blown around on the, the pavement and right, okay. we have no agency. Which is quite defeatist, yeah. 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 And also objects, sort of like just neutral term, like it's just a thing, you know, it's not really dangerous or anything. But mm-hmm. the threat, um, the hyper threat concept I'm, I'm basically drawing upon saying, well, actually, we've humans, uh, we're not done and dusted. We have got thousands of years of knowledge of how to respond to overwhelming dangerous threat, which we can apply and bring to the table. Um, and the other and that, you know, that we have, I still believe we still have some agency, but not as much. And the other thing is that the threat term, I'm actually really trying to spotlight that actually this is presenting a new form of violence, um, killing, harm and destruction. And also that it's not just a hazard, you know, like a, they used to use the term hazard for natural disasters, which were just distinguished from a threat in that there's no hostile intent, there's no consciousness of doing harm. So it's like a, a train driver accidentally had a heart attack and derailed the train. That's, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. caused, or, or there was a naturally occurring cyclone. But um, the threat thing is fairly deliberate because actually there are new forms of conscious intent to do, cause harm. And we see that with 
particularly the fossil fuel industry actions over decades really that they know they know what they're doing and it's it's a different form of hostility because it, it has that slow violence hyper object type it it doesn't it's not like walking up and shooting someone in the head mm-hmm, but it's mm-hmm. still going to kill millions <laughs> um mm-hmm, so but mm-hmm. because we don't conceptualize it as a threat it's it's the threat itself is masked and the hostile yeah. actions are masked yeah, yeah yeah so it's almost like we have to the hyper threat definition mean is we have to completely reconsider the nature of violence and who are the violent actors. Mm-hmm. Of course, and, and when you think about it, that it is through those actions that are contributing to the hyper threat. You know, things that you know we're not going to link BP to a drought in Somalia, mm. and therefore a mass exodus of climate refugees who are going to try to get into Europe, who are therefore going to increase tensions and and the further. Uh, populism in Europe that is going to fracture Europe even more, uh, that's going to then cause uh, antagonism between European nations that might ultimately lead to a conflict between uh, those two nations. So I think this is the, the kind of flow of, you know, the, the, the upstream causes are happening now mm. and have been happening for decades. And the results are we're slowly seeing the results, but we're not necessarily making the cognitive leap that, hey, th- there is a causal chain here. This has started because of our human activity on this earth and without blaming individual companies or individual humans who are part of the incentive structures and incentive models that have allowed such a system, such a model, such a business model, such a consumption-based perpetual growth model. It's not about that. It's not about, I guess, demonizing them, but it's recognizing that they are inadvertently part of the or increasing the threat to all of us. And, and of course, the flow on from that is going to be this kind of uh, uh, expansion of violence uh, and death and destruction that's going to affect all of us. Is that a broad s- summary? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's um, one of Morton's key things is that the cause and effect thing is completely disrupted because of these vast scales and so forth. But um, yeah, and, and also about not demonising. Um, one of, I think, a fairly significant thing in this this new approach to threat is that you don't focus on identities at all because there's a whole mm. stack of research on genocide studies, hate studies of what happens when you assign an identity as a threat a threat identity. But mm. I'm, I'm basically saying you've got to be extremely careful about that and, in fact, only focus on um, behaviours and actions. And mm. and I think, it, yeah, so and, – and then because the threat is diffused and got all those different variants, um, we, we still can't ignore it. We just have to develop – new threat response mechanisms that match the nature of this new threat. And, mm. you know, it is actually part of the – I hate to I, – I do think it is part of the design that they don't want this in the security sector because it if we turn the lens and go onto that, it, it disrupts the whole way we perceive security, which is, mm. you know, we have this legacy of the last century, really, we started using security forces to support that resource extraction and in fact, it now this this is why this is quite revolutionary because actually it turns out we're using our security forces to support our new enemy, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and exasperate something that's going to kill us. So it yeah. really this new lens opens up a lot of things really. And um, and the other thing yeah. is that whole thing of how the threat appears. It it appears in a very nice suit. It's very wealthy. It's gone to Yale. It's um mm. mm-hmm. you know it's very well mannered. And and that is not how we perceive a threat. And I. But their threat actions, we've got to 
not obscure how dangerous they are because mm. of the way it's packaged and presented as a I keep I've got that I've just been listening to Elvis lately and that song um, <laughs> you know you're the devil in disguise was mm. running through mm. my head mm. you know mm. talks like mm. an angel walks like an angel but mm. Mm. Uh, so there, there's a bit of that element going on <laughs> that's so true and it's a but it's a, it's a really interesting way to look at it especially this kind of uh, what you just said about the idea of using you know military power to secure ultimately to secure what is going to be turned out, well, it's already turned out to be our uh, enemy or the threat. Uh, and that's because to protect our trade routes, right? It's in our national interest to protect our trade routes to, you know, sustain our way of life, improve our, improve our way of life. And of course, the mission uh, of the, in, in our case, the Australian Defence Force is to protect Australia and its interests. Um, whatever those interests might be, uh, you know, if that is to secure our trade routes uh, so that we, so that our, our economy uh, stays alive, which of course, in Australia's case, is hugely based on the export of natural uh, resources. Then, of course, we're using ultimately, uh, you know, our nation's defence force to to uh, you know undermine human security uh, more broadly. Which is uh, which is again a really interesting way to. And this is I'm in uniform. I certainly this is not about demonising. This is just about again, like you said, reframing the narrative to realise what is actually happening and why uh, there's so little action. Uh, and does this then bring us to the idea of the concept of entangled security? Yeah. So with this whole thing of trying to find a new way of framing everything, so the first the first chunk of intellectual work was to develop the hyper-threat concept. And then the second, so, and again, this is like, again, following just basic sort of Clausewitzian approaches was one, understand the threat in great detail and the nature of it. So the second one was then to understand the threat environment. And so I'm saying that the threat environment is um, entangled, which means that planetary, human and state security are now inherently interconnected. And so that provides a, a different lens on the on the security environment. And just to give a – that's at, at its most basic level, but there's a, there's a whole stack of um, theoretical concepts behind mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But just to give a, a tangible example is – if you had an entangled security lens, when you look at the the situation in Ukraine, hmm. the first thing it's you know one of the first the, the resource and other aspects of it aren't, aren't spoken about that much. But firstly, um, it's one of the most important food bowls of the world. Hmm. So you know when you're weighing up military action and choices, the impacts of destroying one of the most crucial you know apparently the thick good soil there goes down three meters or something like at this dick you know dark loom soil it's incredible an entangled thing would understand that it's follow-on impacts to people in africa etc and Mm -hmm. um as we saw very early on right yeah yeah and just even when you constantly people talk about protecting trade routes or you know conflict in the south china sea or even that what what they're completely missing from that is that the ocean is, you know, on life support. We've got all these fisheries are struggling to survive. So if we're going to lay a whole lot of sea, sea mines and torpedoes and things and all sorts of submarines and sonars and stuff, at underwater battlefield, we wipe out fisheries which support, you know, the, that's one of the most important food sources for the whole Asia, um, the Asian region and especially the Pacific with the tuna. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It underpins their entire economies. So military planning now... It, Without thinking about these on a very, very fragile ecosystem, without thinking of these things, it will undermine all of our security. Mm, mm, mm. So it's basically that that now we have to think of all those things when you're thinking about security at the same time. And, mm. of course, there's the follow-on human impacts because, yeah, once you're losing food and livelihood, yeah, you know what happens next. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's right. Yeah, and, and, again, this is, again, part of the 
the the flow-on effects to to conflict, further destruction. Uh, the less resources there are, the greater the competition over them, uh, and of course, uh, the greater the tensions leading to then conflict. One of the things that I that I think it's really important to unpack, and that is that unfortunately, the actual belief in climate change, that it's human caused climate change, has been politicized. I think it's accepted broadly across the halls of power globally that it's real and that it's human-caused and that the clock is ticking and that we're already way behind where we should be uh, if we are to, I guess, to reverse uh, the the impacts. But, of course, there are many prominent public figures who are discrediting the science, you know, claiming that it's it's overblown or that it's it's alarmist – how do we overcome this? I mean, because it strikes me that this is the first big hurdle before we can start even thinking about a resolution or or, or addressing the hyper threat in as you intend uh, is about bridging this gap uh, of, I guess, climate science denial or, or suppression. Um, I, th- I think it, it factors into why I'm saying the center of gravity is the deep framing or a capacity mm. to see the problem. Because it's not the fog of war, it's the fog of conception. And Mm. and in fact, there is a massive information warfare going on and has gone on for a very long time. There was a a book called Merchants of Doubt released, I think, maybe 15 years ago or 10 Mm. years Mm -hmm. ago, um, which went into great detail of all the the methods, um, basically moneyed interests of of the fossil fuel sector. We're using, setting up these fake think tanks, um, you know, funding stacks and, you know, attacks on climate scientists' credibility and all, all sorts of dagger and cloak sort of background behaviour mm, to mm-hmm, discredit mm-hmm. the science. And, and anyway, and they've become quite masterful at it. I think it is a real problem. And so that's one of the things I've, in these Plan E, I have a thing called Operation Visibility and Knowability, which is to re- and, and I'm not saying um, this is easy, but we actually, as a survival mechanism, we have to regain the sense-making mechanisms in our society for example you know we know i think most people are pretty aware that the media is owned by moneyed interests again mm. and but we all still listen recently, to it we all still watch it i mean that's yeah. the that's the yeah this is the the cognitive dissonance that you know we all know it's biased but we all still watch it which i, I yeah, yeah I, I just don't understand but it's gone in, it's gone into overdrive and mm. and even even now i don't know if you've heard of this book um it's called choke point capitalism no. and basically what that goes through is one after one of every form of creative expression of the human being, whether it's um, musicians, singers, songwriters, writers, authors, um, that how that that gets funneled by that same elite um, corporate structure. Mm. So to, you know to get to get your music played on Spotify, you know there's all these um, hoops and things mm. that it, it's all all set up. So what what essentially that means is that all the create and even most of our creative industries are funded by fossil fuel. So human expression across the entire world is basically completely choked and mm. controlled by uh, moneyed interests. Mm. So the hope that gives me is that that there are actually um, quite a lot of people are already aware of this, and we're seeing all these in, you know this rise of all these independent um, podcasts and mm. YouTube sites, and a whole stack of people have have just gone off mainstream media. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, when I think, um, you know, and for example, like Russell Brand, he's actually taking a role where he he's really committed to listening to both sides because there's a, mm. a perception that climate change is a hoax. He and he he's sort of engages with so-called right-wing concepts and left-wing, and he's trying to 
understand that these ideas of divide and conquer are, are actually working against us. Mm. But mm-hmm. one of the things is that we have to recapture, or not recapture, it's sort of, I guess, a pretty militaristic term, but we have to acknowledge that the hyper-threat enablers have taken our sense-making and communication systems. Mm. And so part of the, the strategy is reclaiming those. And I've got, I have a concept called the 60,000 artists and it's not mm. just people who paint. It's like your best filmmakers, your best YouTube, TikTok creatives, people who are incredibly good at communicating. Mm. The other thing I think is quite important is to, is to unpack for people how this science is distorted. And just to give you one example, um, when I worked at the Bureau, something that's always stayed in my mind is we had a conference on climate change miscommunication and the director of the bureau at that time whose name was greg Ayres, who was an atmospheric physicist he brought in a pile of of these sort of skeptics books about nine of them and he'd read the whole lot of them and he was shaking with horror and he went through one example he just pulled out one paragraph of you know mm. some supposed mm. stat and then demonstrated how they'd manipulated the stats and how they manipulated the graph mm. and as someone who loved science and was very dedicated to science, he was he was shaking. He was visibly shaking at how upset mm. he was to see someone so blatantly distort um, yeah. the science. But to do that for every single every single book, every single yeah, sentence that comes yeah. out, it's an incredible amount of effort. But what what is important is to discredit the agencies who are doing this and to show a couple of examples of how they do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was just um, I thought I might just take the chance that. If some of your readers might be thinking, well, you know, given, you know, the role of the money-making influence that came into the pandemic, there is, you know, there is some distrust of um, elites and for good reason. I do understand that there is good reason. And I, I also am sceptical. I've seen things that yeah, that's right. I've, I've lost trust with some of these. Um, I think we all have. The whole society has. Yeah. But you know, I wish I wish it was untrue, but what makes me certain that it is true is that those three years working with the scientists, there is no the integrity of these If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of The Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.